always been a little bit of a lightheartedness to me because life is hard, you know, and you've got to be able to laugh. Hello, this is Tab Bartley, and you are listening to the Oath We Took podcast, the show that tells the Marine Corps story through the Marines that served. This is the seventh episode, and I am joined today by Connor Wentling. He is the reason for this podcast. I know so many amazing Marines who hesitate to tell their stories. Their stories hold so much power and so many life lessons. Oftentimes, though, they go untold. Not every Marine's story is the same. What is the same is the oath that we all took. I'm honored today to have Connor on to share a piece of his story and how he uses humor and positivity to lead and impact those around him. I'm honored today to have Connor on, and I have to be honest, it's so awkward to call you Connor and, and not sir. And we just had this conversation or Captain Whitling, but you were my executive officer at the recruiting station, and I'm excited to have you on the podcast, and you're actually the first Marine Corps officer that is Whoa, on the podcast. Yeah. So yeah. Me. <laughs> so the first question I have for you is, why did you decide to join the Marine Corps? That is a loaded question, because my question would be, which time? Yeah, so what a lot of people don't know about me, and this will this is good for us because you mentioned we were on recruiting together, and I was actually a delayed entry program drop before I became an officer. So I was a depth drop, and a lot of people would say if they knew me, like, oh, that really makes sense now. A lot of the gears just fell in place. So right after September 11th, I was in my freshman year of college and I wasn't doing too well. I had lost my scholarship due to poor time management, read partying, shouldn't have been doing that. And so I was having to pay my way through school and September 11th happened. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go fight. I'm going to fight for my country. And I joined the delayed entry program. I was under a contract. Uh, I was going to go in the reserves as an ammo technician sounded pretty awesome. I didn't know what that was. And I was scheduled to ship right after January 1st, because I was one of those guys, you know, Sergeant, whatever, can I just stay home until after Christmas? Sure you can. And so I was scheduled to ship and my brother was a staff sergeant at the time. And he was stationed in Camp Lejeune. And he called me and he said, listen, you go into the Marine Corps now, even as a reservist, you'll never finish school. The Marine Corps has been around for a couple hundred years. It'll be here when you finish school. Do that first, go in as an officer. And so I listened to him. And it's funny, in recruiting, we would call those people influencers. Do you remember that? Yes. They, if, <laughs> if you get a young man or a young woman to sign their name on the line, and then you have to worry about the influencers when they go home, their mom that doesn't want them to do it, their uncle who might be jaded, whatever, whatever, you know. Anyway, my brother was an influencer. I had to tell my uh, my recruiting, you know, the, the Marine that recruited me, I'm not doing it. And then he brought in his staff in CYC, you know, the guy above him. And eventually it escalated to, I want you to keep this in mind, it escalated to the CEO of RS Columbia at the time, who called me and said, if you don't do this, you will never be a Marine. So I didn't do it. And then I finished college. Uh, and went through OCS as an air contract. So I, I enlisted once, 
didn't serve obviously and then dropped out of the delayed entry program and joined again so i had anyway, no idea <laughs> yeah it's, it's funny it, but the the funny thing is is the irony like we call it karma um but i ended my career in the marine corps in recruiting and had to have numerous conversations with people who decided this isn't for me it's just, ugh, I created this problem for someone years ago. And then you saw it full circle, the impact of what it meant. But, yeah. but it was obviously successful, right? Like going into the yeah. Marine Corps and going, um, were you a pilot, right? You were actually a pilot? I was. But I, and I'll, I'll get to that. But you would ask, and I want to honor the question, what was my reason? Yeah. Well, I thought it was only appropriate since you and I were in recruiting together to remember the benefit tags, the tangibles and intangibles. And believe it or not, my reason for joining the Marine Corps, either when I went, you know, tried to enlist as a reservist or went in as an officer, it was the desire for that sense of belonging to something a little bit bigger and the challenge. I, I grew up in a family where many, many people were in the service, mostly men. And it was the Marine Corps was the hardest. It was the toughest. Um, and so that's why I did that. Uh, those are my, my, my intangibles. And I was going to bring that up. What's so funny is for people who aren't aware of these benefit cards that, that Marines use, there's kind of like, if you do an intangible, it's uh -huh. like, yep, I got you. You're going to be a Marine. The tangible, it's like, well, maybe, but those intangible cards, yeah, it's like money. Those, yeah. So you became a pilot then. Mm -hmm. So where did, I guess, how did that go? Cause Again, I'm enlisted, so I'm still con sometimes confused an officer. So you went, you graduated college, then you went to OCS. I did. Then what was kind of that process? Well, so I, I, I had my military occupational specialty, right? The MOS okay. mm -hmm. before I went to OCS. And that was another one of those funny um, interactions with recruiter stories where I was on the phone with my officer selection officer. And I said, I want to be a pilot. And he said, well, we don't have any air contracts available right now. Okay, fine. Call me when you do. Well, hold on. Let me call somebody and ask. And then five minutes later, magically an air contract appeared. And so what are some of the like, key places you went things you did kind of like the highlights of your career that Connor Wentling's sizzle reel. Okay, yes. let's do it. Uh, the first thing was Quantico, Virginia, and that was OCS and then TBS, the basic school. Marines are proud on saying every Marine's a rifleman or woman, you know, a rifle person. Is that the correct thing? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah. So, but TBS is where every officer goes to learn basic tactical skills that any officer would need. My career path was going to put me in an aircraft, but I still had the opportunity to learn how to navigate on the ground, learn how to lead a convoy, learn a little bit about logistics. It's the whole well-rounded leadership approach that the Marine Corps is great at. And so then I started what was uh, introductory flight training, just basic stuff in a Cessna up, up in Quantico as well. And once I finished that, then I went to Pensacola, Florida for all of the, the really heavy flight school kind of stuff. And then after graduating from flight school, we say, we, you know, I got my wings, uh, my aviator wings. Then it was on to Camp Pendleton, California, to learn to fly my aircraft, which was the CH-46, which if you're not familiar, it's like a flying school bus with two rotors up top. And I'll tell you what, that was a magical 
brief five months for Rachel, for my wife and I out in California. You yeah. know, we had no children. Uh, and we made a vacation out of it as much as we could. But from there, it was back to the East Coast uh, to my first squadron and deployments and that kind of work cycle. And how was that experience like with deployments? And, and I know you, so I, I know that you, you know, have a wife and a family and how was kind of that experience, even coming from a military family, was there a lot like that was like unexpected of you or a lot of struggles that you guys faced as a family? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of that is personal based on temperament and personality. I'm a very sentimental family guy and the deployments were hard just because I'm leaving these people that I love. I'm not going to be a direct part of their life for a few months and I'm not going to have them in mind. And, and just the sentimentality of it was a challenge for me. And in some ways I feel like that limited the sort of the progression of success for me in the Marine Corps to a degree, because I never wanted to put the Marine Corps first at any point. And, and one of the Marines I worked with once or twice or a handful of times, you know, when I was a captain, I was the world's most okay-ish captain. You know, I, I did what needed to be done. I looked out for them, but I wasn't for the most part going to put everything else first and make the Marine Corps the, the golden calf. Which that's so interesting to hear because like, I I don't know, at least for me, like that wasn't really my perception of you. Now I saw the, how you didn't, I'm not saying you put your family before the Marine Corps, but I definitely wouldn't have like automatically been like, oh, he's the most, he's okay-ish and yeah, he's (laughs) not gonna, yeah. But no, I mean, in reality, it really is. Cause like, you know, the, we've had what, like I've done like three interviews and like two of them have said, you know, at a certain point we knew it was time to get out of the Marine Corps because X, Y, Z, and we didn't want to become toxic or we didn't want to, at that point, we were no longer to give the Marine Corps priority over like other things. Yeah. And Um, that's good because what is it? There's an institution that has a leadership principle. Who is it? It's know thyself and seek (laughs) self-improvement. Who says that, you know? That's a good, like, it is one of our leadership principles is that you got to do that health check uh, and know I've got more to give and it'll still be good or I don't have more to give and I need to get out so I don't ruin it for everybody else. But I commend them for recognizing that. Yeah. And then you bring up leadership. And I think that was one of the things too, that like, well, I was only in the Marine Corps for eight years and I was at Quantico only, and then I was only for eight years. Yeah. Only for a quarter of <laughs> I was only line. at yeah. two, two duty stations and in a smaller MOS, I didn't have a lot of direct leadership. So it was interesting, like at going to the recruiting station, Columbia, like your personality and how you love led with such like positivity and joyfulness was a little strange to what strange to me and to what I was used to. I'm used mm-hmm. to like nice people. It's not like everybody was like around was like mean, but the actual, like lead first with the humor instead of like waiting for somebody to like break down their barrier to then finally, Oh right. yeah, we have a moment now where we can, which I think was something really unique, but it worked very well for you because it wasn't, um, it, it was so like appropriate humor. Do you know what it, like, it was the type of yeah. humor that it was like, it really lifted the spirits. And do you feel like that's kind of how you were before you joined the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps just like helped mold you into I, being able to do yes. that? That's a, that is such an on point question for my life right now, but I've always been a little bit of a clown, you know, sort of just 
uh, lack of a better way of putting it, you know, I don't want to refer to myself as a clown necessarily, but there's a, always been a little bit of a lightheartedness to me because life is hard, you know, and you've got to be able to laugh. And so growing up, there was a teacher, you know, the importance of leaders at any point in our life. And when I was in the 11th grade, a substitute teacher pulled me aside and said, Connor, you are very smart. I know that. I know that you are intelligent because of the way you use humor. You need to apply yourself. But before that, the narrative had always been from teachers that I'd had was sort of a Connor's a clown. He's a goofball. Just pay attention to smarter kids in the class. And when she said that to me, a light click that I can use humor for good things and still accomplish great things. And I did bring that to the Marine Corps. That's part of my personality. Um, but as I grew as a leader, I started to realize we need this. This is a very hard job we do. It's a very serious job we do. And you need a little bit of a stress reliever. And I appreciate that, Tab, honestly, because I it was very natural to me, but I worked very hard to make sure that whatever I can do, I'm lightening the mood a little bit. You know, humor can be disruptive if you let it go too far, and it can be very... Um, uh, disparaging. If you use the wrong kind of humor, it can unite us or it can divide us. But if you walk that line on the more positive side, it is, it's like any kind of tool, you know, it's, it's a, it can be something very, very good and helpful. So I appreciate that you, that you called that out in me. I'm going to take that. <laughs> well, no. And I think it's something too, that like, it stands out so much and it's such a kind of different way and a different approach. And it, again, recruiting, recruiting was stressful. Obviously for me, it was not stressful the way it was for other people. I didn't have the same stressors, but like knowing that the small things, like what was the the squirrel that you guys had in oh like, gosh. the like, <laughs> so, whatever. <laughs> okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll do this as fast as I can. So all leaders had different, we all have different personas and different leadership styles, but the thing is you have to be able to adapt uh, adapt to the people you serve because with leadership, they say, guess what? It's not about you. It's always about the other people. Um, but, um, I, when I became the XO, that was completely foreign. When I became the ex executive officer, that was foreign country for me. That map was full of black spots because as an, as a pilot, you're very limited in your, your really, high level leadership roles, typically at a squadron, for example, the commanding officer might be a colonel or a lieutenant colonel. The executive officer is a very senior major or a lieutenant colonel. I left the squadron when I was a brand new captain. So those high level leadership positions were not there for me. And this gets back, I mean, to the arbitrariness of the military where you can have a plan, but then the plan can go different ways. And I, I didn't get a, the chance to stick around the squadrons long enough to, to get there. So when I got to the recruiting station and I immediately became the operations officer, okay, that was a little bit closer to what I might've been used to, but becoming the executive officer was very new territory. I took over for, uh, for a, a man who was an infantry officer they are super just hyper-focused on that type of a role. And so where the squirrel came from real quick was he had all sorts of trinkets on the wall from his, like 
awards for being a great infantry officer. He had a sword, you know, a gladius, all this awesome stuff. I didn't have anything like that. And it was sort of tongue in cheek. I hung, it's a, a little tiny mounted squirrel head that I had to taxidermy once as a project. And so anyway, I put that on my wall and it became a running joke. It's like, don't take ourselves too seriously because the time is so fleeting. And once I vacate the seat, it's going to be filled again and I'm going to be forgotten and all my things on the wall will be pulled down. So the joke was the squirrel head and it, it just became this thing. People wanted to see it's silly, but anyway, I should really have that on my shelf too. Right? I get- like your leadership style of humor stood out so much because there's so many, like, at least as a junior Marine, there's so many humorous moments that like I go back uh-huh. to. And then to have a leader who like leads with that positivity, it's just like, oh, you can remember these moments like as that atmosphere. Major Nash, I, I'm sure he'll never listen to this, but like, you know, when he, we knew he wasn't going to be in the office that day and it was like, today's a PT day. Uh-huh. And we all knew, <laughs> we all knew we got in our PT clothes and like the little things of like, okay, on the, what was it on the hour, every hour we would do something around the building. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, uh, unfortunately I'm pretty good at navigating the gray area in between black and in between white. Uh, I love, yeah, the Marine Corps' rules. We're going to have rules. Okay, it's good to have rules, all right? Yeah, don't put your hands in your pockets. But it's 20 degrees outside, right? But don't put your hands in your, (laughs) don't wear your gloves either. But wait, you know, anyway, I don't love rules for the sake of rules. And I feel like common sense should always have a seat at the table. But you mentioned Major Nash, though, and this is a good thing, though. Leaders always set the culture tab and and. I'm so appreciative of the Marine Corps for this, for letting me go through this school where I could experiment with my leadership style because he recognized the value of having different personalities blended together for a, a unit culture. And, and I'll tell you a quick story is one of the officer selection officers that was in Columbia at the time, you know, he, for those who might not be familiar, he was we had, we had hundreds of recruiters recruiting for enlisted Marine slots. We had a couple of officer selection officers trying to find the me's of the world, you know, the, the, you know, lost souls who needed a place to go call home as college graduates. Well, I remember a conversation where uh, Major Nash and this officer selection officer were sort of having a little bit of a point of friction about a particular applicant and Major Nash told him, "You would you select Captain Wentling if he walked into your office? No, I wouldn't. He's right. But we need people like that. We need people with his personality. Like we need people with your personality, you know, because it's not a one size fits all thing. And so I, I always have. I don't, I'm not going to cry on your podcast, but I dare you to make okay. me. But I've cried on everyone so far. I'm starting to get choked <laughs> up thinking about it. I mean, just a good guy out there somewhere, probably still doing good guy stuff. Um, and uh, just the influence people around us can have. No, and I I said that too, from my experience on MPA duty, because historically um, marketing duty for public affairs is a, you're going to hate your life. Your command is never going to listen to you. You're going to fight all these battles. And like, for me, it was like, I didn't have any battles to fight. There was a seat at the table. When I talked, it was like, cool. Uh Uh, Yeah. She said, we'll do this and we'll do that. And so, yeah, definitely that culture of like Columbia was very, like, I had a great experience at Quantico too, but it was just like, it was amazing to see like 
again, top down yeah. how it, how it like led. And we were so different. And I think I love that about Columbia too. I felt like we were all very different, but like we worked together very well. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, I, I think it was Emerson had the quote that said every man, and this is just taking it in the time it was written. Every man is my superior in some way. And that I learned from them. And I've always kept that really close to my heart because everybody I meet, no matter how good I am at this one thing, I'm going to meet somebody who's so much better at something else. And it's an opportunity to learn. And I can remember so many times I came into your office and truthfully, I had no clue how you did what you did. I didn't know what you were. I, like I knew what you were responsible for, but I didn't know how you made it all happen. And it's you know, the importance on my end, I knew was humility. I have, you're the expert here. It doesn't matter what my rank is. You're the expert and I have to trust you and rely on you. And then I think good leaders also put the power back to the people who are dependable. And you always made that very easy to do. So it was always a pleasure getting to work with you, even though it was a relatively short time. Yeah. And it, did you, cause you brought up earlier that you'd never been in that type of leadership position. What were kind of your fears or concerns in, in taking that, especially being a personality that like you didn't show that at all. Like I had no idea that you weren't in any type of like leadership role in regards to like that type of level. Like Mm -hmm. I had no idea until you just mentioned it. That's not something that you even sort of put off. Right. That's where the Marine Corps really comes in. And hopefully as you talk to more, you know, interviewees, you're going to find this, that the Marine Corps does a crazy good job of instilling a disproportionate amount of confidence into people. I've often said in the years since I first joined that my confidence quickly outpaces my skill level. I, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to figure it out. I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to find somebody who does. It's that mentality of I will, what Hannibal cross in the Alps, I will find a way or I will make one. And to answer your question, I didn't know how to do it, but that was par for the course. The Marine Corps injects us into situations that we don't know how to do, but because of a history of overcoming adversity, we know we can do it. And that's like skill can be learned, you know? And, and so it was just confidence that I could figure it out and, and, knowing that I was surrounded by smart people like you that would help me out and get me there. And you, so you left, you got out of the Marine Corps and recruiting duty. What kind of led for that decision to get out of the Marine Corps? What was that kind of like driving force to get out of the Marine Corps? Okay. So this is the doozy question for me. The one that it took me years to wrestle with. I was a medical discharge. I got injured in Afghanistan and because of the injury, I couldn't fly anymore. So the Marine Corps had this weird, to walk it back quickly, you said you, you, know, you served for eight years. Well, to become a pilot, you have to really put your pound of flesh on the line for an air contract. And I had to serve for six to eight years at a minimum. And that clock didn't start ticking until after flight school was done. So I was in the Marine Corps for almost three years before I was even up to have my, you know, jail sentence, as some people put it, start ticking down. Uh, And so I took a deployment to Afghanistan and got injured and I couldn't fly anymore. So then there's this weird situation where 
I still owed the Marine Corps. I think at that time it was three years on that contract, but I couldn't fly anymore. I was a little too senior to go be trained in a new MOS. And so arbitrary job assignments, what do you want to do? Uh, what do you have monitor, you know, that sends us our different options. I've got recruiting duty. What's that? Well, that's this. Okay. I'll try that. And so I, I came to Quantic or came to, to uh, Columbia and uh, to, to kind of run out the rest of my time. And then it became clear without having, you know, any other options, medical discharge was the route that I had to go down. And truthfully, I was embarrassed by it. There's such a stigma with it, or at least there was, this is four and a half, five years ago. And it was, it was kind of humiliating. I, I see it as a huge blessing. The Marine Corps really took care of me and took care of my family. Uh, it could have, I, I could have been forced out with nothing, uh, but they took care of me and I have nothing but great things to say about that. The, the VA people will say what they want, but again. I, and that's where every Marines and veteran story is so unique to them, mm -hmm. right? Like that's where like we may have these shared experiences or this things that yes, we've gone through together, but then like there are times the system works. There are times yeah. that it does. And it's important to talk about those times as much as it is the negative. How was the process for you um, in regards to getting that discharge? And especially like that transition, I guess, once you almost accepted that it was happening, how was that? Right. Well, and I want to just add quickly, because this is such a sensitive topic for so many people. Had it not been for the support network that I had specifically for my wife, I don't think I would have, I think pride would have prevented me from, from accepting the, the care that I received. She at the time was working with wounded warriors, uh, which is a very legit, legitimately good organization. And she was working with people who were in similar circumstances and she recognized in me the things that I needed help with, we are super good at putting masks on. And I use humor as the ultimate mask. I could, if, if my wife came on, she could probably attest that I can seem like a psychopath because I can be upset at home and grumpy with everybody. And then a, a friend walks in the door. I'm like, Hey, how's it going? Woo, party. Yeah. You know, and, and I can put it on very quickly. And there were times at RS Columbia towards the end where anxiety and depression were a serious thing, but, but I was able to hide it. I can't hide things from her. Uh, there are people in our life who we cannot hide things from. And those are the people that if they're the right people, we really need to rely on them. And Tab, I just trusted her advice. She said, we, you need to take this seriously. Um, and so I, I would just want to give a plug for our support structure. If you had one, or if you have one, tell them, thank you. You know, I need you and you were there for me and, and thank you. So it was pretty smooth. Maybe I had a, an uncommon experience, but it, it wasn't bad. Yeah. And I think that is important to highlight that it can go smooth and things can go smooth. And, and, and I really do think that it's important. Like you mentioned, Rachel and her stepping in and her seeing stuff. I, 
for anybody who's listening, who's going through the process, especially when it comes to your VA appointments and your VA stuff, you do not have to go alone. You can have an advocate Mm -hmm. in the room with you. You don't have to go to anything alone. Um, And if you can't ask for help, ask for somebody to ask for help for you. You moved back to your hometown, correct? Like from the get-go, or did did. you stay in Columbia for a while? We we did, and it was... um... It was a decision we made together that was very, very hard because the hours on recruiting duty were insane. And some of it was self-inflicted, but I worked such long hours. I was barely at home where Rachel had two and a half years, three years where she was very much plugged into the community there. It was harder for her to come back to Rock Hill than it was for me, but we have family here. And so it's funny that we look back in hindsight and I had the opportunity at one point to possibly go to Hawaii or possibly go to Japan. And we thought, we don't know how long our parents will live. Let's stay on the East coast. They're still alive. And we are now not going to Japan or Hawaii. So anyway, but it's like, we wanted to be back close to family for our kids uh, to grow up and have those important relationships. But uh yeah it's 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 a little strange now to to grow to be back in the same town I grew up with doing things in the same areas with our kids who are are now the age that Rachel and I were when we first met it's just it's bizarre but that that is so cool though at the same time especially like having left and then come and and come back and I am uh, glad about that yeah I think it it gives me a greater worldview, but just more appreciation. But yeah, there's something to be said about getting out and seeing a few things. So travel and adventure, right? A benefit and, tag. And I know we, when we were like, you know, both going through the transition process, we had talked a few different times. And one of the things that you were looking at getting involved in or doing more of was like public speaking. And is that mm. something you're still doing, still pursuing. Um, because that's something I remember very well. Like you gave very good, intriguing, like speeches <laughs> and like interactions and presentations. And again, you used humor in such right. a way that people like actually like received the message. Um, so I'm interested to, to hear how that is going. Okay. This is where, you know, they say the importance of putting it out in the universe and then before long you have accountability for it. Yeah, that has been a dream of mine for years to somehow transition into public speaking, but it's such a noisy world that we live in that it's that self-doubt creeps in like, eh, there's enough people talking. I'll just leave it up to them. I'll just continue to be disappointed in myself for the rest of my life for not trying it. So, but I do think in the next year, my goal is to put something together that I can sort of share with the world. And ironically, I think it's going to be around the use of humor, use of appropriate humor in the workplace. Specifically, there's a um, just an epidemic of workplace dissatisfaction in our country. There's so many articles, so many professional academic publications being written on this. There's a problem. And it means a lot that you brought this up and I didn't ask you to bring up the humor piece earlier, but a little bit of humor can make really crummy situations or really frustrating work environments tolerable. So I think I do want to get into that and I'm, I'm actually working on that now. So hopefully 
let's say well, awesome. 10, then, months from now. I was about yeah. to say, so we'll put you on the calendar to come on the podcast again so that you can talk about exactly <laughs> what you're doing. But it's amazing, Tab, where it's the, the things that drew me to the Marine Corps were one thing, but the thing I, things I took away are totally different. And I've, I tend to say when people, you know, they'll do the, you know, thank you for your service or did you like it? And it's like, yeah, I loved it. I appreciate your gratitude, but I got way more out of the Marine Corps than the Marine Corps got out of me. You know, I, I might've gone in for pride of belonging or a challenge, but I left with all those selves, you know, the self-discipline, self-reliance, you know, self-motivation, self-esteem, all that. It's, it's amazing. And so to your point, if I can pull this off, it's going to be because of the Marine in me. So I love that. And one thing I want to bring up, because I think this is one of the coolest things ever. So your dad is an honorary Marine and you helped with that process, which is, I mean, you can talk more about the process, but there's only what, 47 honorary Marines. I don't ever. know. It's, it's, it's very low, very low. Yeah. I meant to look up the number before this. Um, but how, how was that process? Why did you want to like do it? And like, especially as a family of Marines and your father, not being a Marine, why was it important for you, for him to get that recognition and get that title? It is one of the things he's most proud of. And the, the way it started though, I can't take credit for that. I, I believe you're involved with the Marine Corps league mm-hmm. in your area. Yeah. Yeah. This is the power of the, the good of the Marine Corps, the esprit de corps, the, the fraternity of Marines that sometimes lives long after we all take off our uniforms. And that's that he, my father was in the army. He did a couple of years as, you know, he was drafted during Vietnam, that era. But one of his regrets was he was not a Marine. Uh, the Marine Corps, you know, going back to recruiting, the Marine Corps never had money to throw at recruits. What we had to throw at or the applicants was the Marine Corps story, was the Marine Corps itself. And so he, there was a part of him that always wanted to be a Marine, but never had that chance. So he did a lot of volunteering at the Marine Corps League. And it was he was the associate of the year, which for people who don't know, that's a special award for people who weren't Marines you know, because the Marines are incredibly protective of that title Marine. Uh, And so they came up with associates of the year to help all you other people, you know? And so he would get it year after year after year. And um, one of the, one of the guys that was uh, part of the Marine Corps league, I can't remember his name right now, uh, but he was a Marine. He thought of this, trying to do this for my dad. And he got in touch with me, who then, because of where I was at the time, was able to, pull, you know, talk to the next person and talk to the next person. Remember, I'll find a where I'll make one. And just sort of we bull and China shop our way to, to pushing this thing through. But that was it was super cool because he had no clue. My brother, you mentioned my family of Marines. Mm-hmm. My brother was in his uniform. Uh, we had his kids. So a niece and two nephews all in uniform. So five of us were up there. Dad, this is your legacy. Congratulations. Job well done. Uh, and so he now, instead of associate of the year, he gets, I think it's, I think we honorary, have Marine of the year too. Honorary Marine of the year. Cause they, they <laughs> yeah, won't give so him the full of- credit. 
and that's, they, they, that they gives, give him so much grief. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, I just thought that was one of the coolest things. Um, and it was cool to see like that many Marines all related. Cause I don't think I know a family that has that many Marines who were especially all serving at the same time. Like we're yeah, very close was, together. It was nuts. I, so this is a fun fa- Wentling family piece of trivia. You know how the Marine Corps uses Microsoft Outlook as its email server. I think, and, and there's, it's, what was it? The gal, the global the address. Global, yeah. Yeah, something. But you could type in the name and I, there are still two Wentlings in the Marine Corps now. So if you go back to my brother, there's been a Wentling in the gal in the Marine Corps, but like our family, I'm not talking about Johnson or Smith, you know. Legitimately your family. Legitimately <laughs> one of our family members in there since the Marine Corps adopted email 30 years ago or whatever, so. That yeah. is that is humorous. That is super funny. Oh goodness. I do have one more question for you. Though, All right. Which what is, is if you had to take the oath again, would you? Yes, I absolutely would. Um, and part of it, I, I would say I have the recruiting assignment to thank for that. It was the most challenging but most rewarding three years of a job I think I've probably ever had. And so it's sort of like, have you ever watched a bad movie? And it could be terrible, but the last three minutes was insane. It was so awesome. You walk out like, that's a pretty good movie. That's how, before recruiting, it was okay. And I I hit a a low point and the depression and the anxiety and, and all this stuff and then recruiting duty. And it was just, it was an incredible experience and I'm so grateful for it. And it left me with, if nothing else, that last three minutes that was awesome and and the people. I think you're required to say the people. The people were great. So yeah, I feel like that's a pretty like, yeah. Yeah. But no, I would. I, I would do it over again. I would change a few things. Uh, but I would do it over again if I could. So what are the what are the things you would what are one of the things that you would have changed? Well, okay, in a nutshell, I wanted to be a lawyer for up to a point in my life. I thought I would be a good lawyer, you know? And so I envied she knew it too she would always tell me well i'd say i wish i had your job well being a pilot was cool wasn't it right but i don't want yeah uh was very attractive to me i think i would have liked to have been a jag officer but wasn't in the cards i think i would have changed that or maybe not worried so much about the uh how many heartbeats our parents had left and maybe gone to Japan for a few years. That would have been cool too, but, but overall it was great. And I would do it again if I could. This is the Oath We Took podcast. And you just heard a piece of Connor's story. You now know one more Marine and one more piece of the Marine Corps history. His service matters. His stories matter. Not every Marine's story is the same. We didn't all join the military for the same reasons. What is the same is the oath that we all took. An oath that easily could have ended in death, and for some, it did. So listeners, instead of asking you to thank a Marine for their service, I'm going to challenge you to continue to listen to their stories instead.